This morning marks the fourth and final day of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing after he was grilled late into the night. Our senior national correspondent Terry Moran is there in the hearing room once again has more. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Robin, and welcome to No Uncertain Terms, produced by U.S. Term Limits, your sanctuary from partisan politics. Will Justice Brett Kavanaugh be the swing vote on term limits? In 1995, Justice Anthony Kennedy cast the deciding vote in U.S. term limits versus Thornton. In that 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court voided voter-approved referenda in 23 states that limited the terms of those states' congressional delegations. It was a major setback for the term limits movement. But over the last two decades, the face of the court has changed. Most recently, Justice Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote, retired at the end of July. Last week, the Senate grilled U.S. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who is expected to be confirmed as Kennedy's replacement. What does this mean for the future of term limits before the court? I am joined once again by U.S. Term Limits Executive Director Nick Tombalides. Hey, Nick. Hey, Phil. You know, if you um, tell the senators who are voting on Kavanaugh that he might be the key to term limiting all of them, I think he'll probably go down 100 to zero. <laughs> You're probably right. It's a very interesting development um, because you, you talk about the U.S. term limits versus Thornton decision. Uh, for those of our listeners who aren't aware of that, that was the case that decided um, states could not term limit their members of Congress using amendments to state constitutions or changes to state statutes. Uh, because as you said, 23 states in the 1990s tried to do it that way. In 5-4 split decision, the court struck it down and said, no, the only way to get term limits on Congress is with a constitutional amendment. And um, right. you know, three right. of the nine judges who decided that case are still on the bench. That's Ginsburg, which ones those? That's Ginsburg Breyer, and Thomas. The other okay. six have either been replaced or are about to be replaced. And for the most part, the judges who ruled in the Thornton case were replaced by someone with a similar... I guess you could say legal approach. So Justice Stevens was replaced by Justice Kagan, who would also mm -hmm. be expected to rule against term limits. Justice Scalia, two years ago, was replaced by Gorsuch, uh, who we know would rule in favor of term limits because he has said that he would. But here's where it gets interesting. If Kavanaugh is confirmed by the Senate, he could flip the court potentially in a pro-term limits direction because he's replacing right. Anthony Kennedy, who voted in 1995, against term limits. So if Kavanaugh votes with term limits, that would create a 5-4 majority and it would really open up a, you know, a world of opportunity for the states to term limit their members of Congress. Well, let's talk about that. Um, it was the U.S. term limits versus Thornton decision in 95 uh, that, that um, threw off all of the voter-approved referenda um, that put federal term limits in place on, on, on uh, federal uh, congressional delegations in 23 states. What would happen if the Supreme Court changed its mind and, over, and overturned U.S. tournaments versus Thornton? So in order to do that, they'd have to be overturning a precedent, um, which the Supreme right. Court does all the time. I mean, we just saw a few months ago they overturned uh, the precedent on requiring uh, non-members to submit union dues to uh, public sector unions. So the Supreme Court has a tradition of setting precedents and then from time to time overturning those precedents. So it, mm -hmm. would, it would overturn a precedent and overnight you would see that um, 
a significant number of states representing just under half of the U.S. Congress would have term limits on their congressmen. Right, over, because they never overturned those correct. or overturned those uh, laws. I think actually one or two states, I believe, did. But over 20, let's say 21 states, I think is actually the right number. 21 states would have term limits overnight. That yeah, would like, be incredible. Like Florida, where I, I live in Florida, in our state constitution, we have term limits for all the members of Congress from Florida, but those are not in operation because of this Thornton decision. If it gets overturned, then bam, overnight, it's a, it's a silver bullet, and you have term limits on just under half of Congress. Now, what would that mean for getting term limits on the entire Congress? I think it would be, it would be exactly what you needed. It would truly be the silver bullet because mm -hmm. those members of Congress with the term limits would not tolerate a situation where the other half of Congress has no term limits. So I Indeed, think that, was, yeah. that was the plan back in the early right. 90s. The reason from uh, each state, of course, wanted to have term limits on their congressional delegations. Um, but the larger plan from the term limits movement was that if state after state term limited their own congressional delegations, that eventually it would become in the best interests of um, the best interests of a near majority of the Congress to term limit the rest. And that would be the leverage that is put on the Congress to have them act presumably against their own interest by Correct. limiting terms. Correct. That's, right. why, that's why in 1995, the Congress actually voted five times on amendments that would have term limited everybody. I mean, they didn't do it for altruistic reasons. They didn't do it because they suddenly fell in love with good government. Um, it was because congressmen from states like Florida realized, well, I can only be here eight years. Why am I going to allow a member from Hawaii to stick around for 50 years? Because that, that disparity in tenure and seniority would really cause a lot of problems for Congress. Um, so right. if you were to overturn this Thornton decision uh, through some mechanism, then almost overnight you would ratchet up the pressure on Congress to propose an amendment applying to everybody. Hello, this is Scott Tillman, National Field Director with U.S. Term Limits. I want to give you a pledge update. This week, I'm going to update you on the number of pledge signers we have in state legislators. State legislators can help us by taking a pledge and co-sponsoring legislation to help us impose term limits on Congress. The pledge they take reads, I pledge that as a member of the state legislature, I will co-sponsor and vote for the resolution applying for an Article 5 convention for the sole purpose of enacting term limits on Congress. So far this cycle, we've had over 270 state legislative candidates sign the pledge. Over 180 of those state legislative candidates are still in their races. But one thing that gives us some encouragement in the case of U.S. term limits versus Thornton is that it actually is a pretty unstable ruling. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, it was a split decision. It was five to four, right, with, again, as we said, Kennedy as the swing vote. And uh, but there's arguably uh, uh, dozens, maybe uh, many dozens of laws on the books around the country that seemingly contradict, that violate U.S. tournaments versus Thornton. And they are laws that have been on the books and are respected and adhered to and have been for a very long time. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the main arguments and probably the main argument in U.S. tournaments versus Thornton is that the qualifications to be a congressman are laid out in the Constitution and you can't add any additional ones. And then um, the time, place, and manner restrictions on uh, basically the other decisions regarding setting up elections are being done by the states. Well, 
so they said that, well, a term limit must be a qualification, and therefore you, you can't add any additional ones, and therefore it's invalid. It's, anti it's not constitutional. But if you look down at this, the laws that are in place right now in the state, such as residency requirements, where a congressman has to live in their own district, or a uh, resign-to-run rule, where um, you have to quit your current position in some other place in the state in order to run for Congress, or um, ballot access rules. There's all a, a long list of provisions that have been put on the books by the states that add sort of quasi-qualifications if you use the logic of U.S. tournaments versus Thornton. That's an unstable situation. Right. I would have to say legally it's a double standard. I mean, you've named some great examples there, and there are even more, like the sore loser sure. laws. Um, sore you know, loser. Which says that if you've lost in a primary, then you can't run uh, in a general election under a different party. Some states have those laws, others don't. And they're upheld right. because they're considered ballot access restrictions rather than qualifications um, for office. But So if you were right. to write a term limit, theoretically, um, at the state level, that is framed more like a ballot access uh, restriction, meaning that it is not totally impassable. So for example, a consecutive term limit. Uh, consecutive term limit would mean you could serve in Congress for six consecutive years, sit out a term, and then return to Congress. It's not impassable because all you have to do to meet that uh, requirement is sit out a term. A term limit phrased in that way, I think would have a better chance of success at the Supreme Court level based on the, the reasoning that we've seen from the judges so far. I think you're right, um, but that brings to mind also that there's other uh, rules that the states put on uh, congressmen running uh, for office in their state um, that seem a lot more like a qualification than a term limit. And the way that you just describe a term limit, I think it clearly is a ballot access uh, or time, place, and manner regulation rather than a qualification. But, you know, for instance, some states require that you uh, are a voter in that state in order to run for Congress. Well, that's not a qualification set out in the Constitution. But to become a voter in a state, uh, in a lot of states, there's an enormous number of qualifications that go along with that. So you're importing all these real qualifications to run for a Congress, again, in violation of U.S. term limits versus Thornton. Um, and so that's right. I, I really, as I, it makes it even clearer when you when you give that description how unstable U.S. term limits versus Thornton really is. Yeah, I mean, and, and the real cool thing about this is, you know, Supreme Court may rule to overturn the precedent. They may not. We really don't know what's happening in the future. Um, but we do know is there is now a third potential breakthrough way to get term limits on Congress. The first two, of course, being a two-thirds vote in Congress to propose an amendment or a uh, convention called by states to propose a term limits amendment. The third potential breakthrough would be if the court overturned this decision and basically um, implemented term limits on several states' delegations you know, in the blink of an eye. Uh, so right. term limits supporters have a lot to be excited about. They have a lot to be hopeful for uh, in the next few years. Quoting session! What do you mean, oh, 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 Mr. Quoting session! Order! My name is George Ruffneck. Why do we always elect politicians we hate? Now that the 2018 midterms are upon us, I wanted to do a little analysis of election results. Oftentimes, supporters tell us, we have term limits, they're called elections. But are elections and term limits really the same thing? 
You hear the term incumbent advantage, but what does that really mean? The 2016 U.S. House election was a good year for incumbents. But then again, all election years are good for incumbents. According to Sarah John's article on fairvote.org, why 2016 was a stronger year for incumbents, only 12 of the 435 seats, that's 3%, changed hands. And just 8 of 387 incumbents contesting the general election were defeated. That amounts to an incumbency re-election rate of 98%. In other words, just 2% of the incumbents will lose. Each incumbent wins by a margin of 70 to 30% in a district that favors their political party affiliation, meaning they don't just emerge victorious. They crush any competition. That is, if they even have any. This week, the New York Times published an article entitled, These 20 Representatives Have Not Had a Primary Challenger for At Least a Decade, naming 20 House members who haven't really faced any opposition, some for almost 30 years. In U.S. House elections, nearly all incumbents are easily re-elected. Many districts are considered safe, which means regardless of the individual candidate, the district is handed to the political party in power. No doubt gerrymandering is at play, where the party in power has a say in drawing district lines that look like coiling serpents. How appropriate. So they follow demographic voting patterns rather than more natural boundaries to the advantage of the party in control. But it is not only district partisanship that provides safety for incumbents. Incumbency itself is an electoral advantage. Incumbents typically have greater name recognition, better campaign fundraising ability, more press coverage, and franked mail privileges, meaning they may send unlimited promotional mailings using taxpayer dollars instead of campaign funds. They also have more experienced campaign operations and the ability to bring home political favors to their district. This list is by no means exhaustive. Without question, term limits make elections fairer. Term limits cause open seats that encourage quality candidates to run for office. Take a look at your primary ballots and notice that seats with incumbents generally have no competition, meaning the office holder really has no election since he or she runs unopposed and the voter has no choice other than the incumbent. At the state level, Ballotpedia just reported this week that nearly one-third of state legislative seats lack major competition. Their annual state legislative competitiveness report claims that 2017 of the 6,073 seats, that's 33.2%, lack major party competition, meaning that no candidates from the other major party filed for those seats, guaranteeing the office to the party in control. Also notice that races with open seats because a candidate was either term limited or decided to run for another open seat for higher office have many, many more candidate choices. Everyone knows you'd be crazy to run against an incumbent because you'd only have a 2% chance of victory. As you can see, term limits create fairer elections, increase both voter and candidate participation, and enhance representation because legislators more accurately reflect the attitudes of their constituents. This is a result of opening up races regularly to citizen legislators living among the community, making it tougher for politicians to distance themselves. Do you think your representative is the only person in your community who can do the job? Elections are not term limits. This is Stacy Selleck of U.S. Term Limits for No Uncertain Terms. In 2017, the Term Limit Revolution was published. 
This book laid out the case for congressional term limits and also a strategy for achieving them. Since the book landed in activist hands, two additional state legislatures have called for a term limits convention, one of the strategies advocated in the book. Today we have on the line the author, Scott Murphy, to talk about the book's first year and its upcoming second edition. Murphy was born and raised in central Illinois. A graduate of Illinois Wesleyan University, he worked on this family farm until founding SeedEquipment.com, a firm which sells hybrid seed equipment worldwide. He is a pilot and, due to a stint as a scuba diver with a dynamiting company, holds a license to handle high explosives. In Chapter 2, after explaining how the blasting agent ANFO is used in quarries to shear off walls of solid rock, he tells us, the goal of this book is to be the spark that ignites a revolution. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a year now since the publication of your book, The Term Limit Revolution. Uh, what's been your experience with bringing these ideas to the public? The public is very receptive to these ideas. The uh, the public is is very much in favor of term limits. The problem is right now they're they are so fractioned where they uh, there's all kinds of different groups that have got all kinds of ideas. And the the purpose of the book is to try and bring them into one group, following one set of goals to be united because in, in unity there's a lot of strength right and i know that in the early 90s uh, where we had tremendous success um, at the ballot box using um, initiatives um, that success didn't transfer over to the um, congress because there were so many different groups united under different bills different ideas using different strategies and um, the politicians sort of played us Right, they they um, absolutely everybody got to be yep. everybody got to be a tournament supporter, but they uh, ensured because everybody had a different bill that nothing ever passed. Yes, and and that's that was really brilliant on their part because they could all say I voted for term limits, but I voted against some of the other bills of term limits because I didn't think they were as good as mine. So, like you said, everybody got to vote for term limits, and term limits didn't even come close to passing. Right. So, yeah, we got played. Yep. Now, in talking to people, um, what argument for congressional term limits do you believe resonates the best? I, 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 there are so many arguments that are for them that – True. To pick one out to, that would be the best, would I think it would be that uh, uh, that it eliminates the lifetime appointments. And, and I, I talk a lot about lifetime appointments in the book. And what I mean by a lifetime appointment is there is an unwritten rule in politics that you don't primary an incumbent. Mm -hmm. So if you don't primary an incumbent, then the, the incumbent can't be taken out in the primary because there won't be, there won't be a challenger. Right. And then if you're in a very partisan district, and there are, there are, are partisan districts that are very partisan, not even due to gerrymandering, but mm -hmm. just due to where they are. Uh, the south side of Chicago is extremely Democrat. Uh, there are places here in Illinois that are are extremely Republican. In Tennessee, some of these places, you're never going to get somebody from the other party in. So if you can't be taken out in the primary and you can't be taken out in the general election, then you have what really amounts to a lifetime appointment. That's and I, I don't think that that's what we're what we're looking for here in uh, uh, in the United States with the people that, that 
that we put in Congress. At one time, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a higher turnover in the Politburo in Moscow than there was in Congress in Washington, D.C., <laughs> and I had read this, and I, I thought that can't be true, and I started researching it and researching it, and I found that absolutely that was true, that, that yeah. they had a higher turnover than us, and we think of uh, of the old communist Soviet Union as being a place where once you were in, you were in for life, and, and yet we we had a higher retention rate. So wow. uh, that 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 is one thing that I think people really uh, that really resonates well with them. Another thing is that Congress does not really look like America. Uh, Congress, we have people who have been in Congress for so long. And they can't be voted out because either they have too much money, they have too much clout, they have too much uh, whatever, or they're in a uh, uh, a very partisan district and nobody wants right. to try and take them out in a general, so no they challenges. can stay and stay and stay. Right. So if we don't have any challengers, uh, then people just stay forever. Uh, Strom Thurmond was in there. He was 100 years old in the Senate when he finally uh, uh, finally left. So that's, you know, that's, that is not what we're looking for. I don't believe in in our uh, in our legislators. I just don't think that that's what we. What, what, I don't think that's what America is all about. Okay. What inspired you to write this book? I mean, how did this issue grab you personally? I never intended to write a book. I started. I started reading a little bit about uh, about term limits, and I started doing my own research. And I started checking things out. And I started. And I just started writing a few things down, maybe thought I'd write a, an op-ed or something like that. And the more I went, the more it looked like this could possibly be a book. Uh, I never thought that there would be enough to put in there about a book uh, or to make it into a, a complete book. The first edition of it, there was a lot of filler in there because I didn't know the things when I was writing the book that I know now a year later after I've been talking to people and that sort of thing. So, uh, so now I've taken a lot of the stuff that was what I consider to be boring filler and put in things that are much more germane to the argument. Uh, like the first chapter where we, uh, I, that I, I sent to you and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that first chapter is a lot different in, in the revised version than it is in the first version. Right. And you also, I, I see, sent um, have a new cover planned as well. Yes, yes. The the original cover, uh, I, I sat with uh, with Scott Tillman and with uh, Paul Jacob in Chicago, mm-hmm. and we talked about well, what's on a cover? What could you put on a cover for term limits? Mm-hmm. And we really we really weren't sure what to put on there. It, we just how do what do you put on a book like that? So I <laughs> I. I had a friend of my stepdaughter's who is a phenomenal graphic artist. She drew, hand drew uh, uh, Washington and Lincoln looking at one another, and then in the middle it said the term limit revolution. Mm-hmm. She did a beautiful job of what I gave her, of the instructions that I gave her, but I just gave her very bad instructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the design, and it was my design, was was very bad because it didn't show what the what the book was about. You, you couldn't tell if it was a novel, if it was a history book. You just oh, right. you didn't have any idea. And, and so that that cover was very bad. Well, I'll tell you uh, what, the new one, which I've seen, um, doesn't leave much to the imagination. 
No, it does not. <laughs> it does not. It, it that new one. They, I, I I read that uh, you have eight seconds from the time somebody picks up a book to have them decide whether they want it or not. Mm. My old cover, you would have to read the book to find out what the book's about. The new cover, yes, it's got uh, uh, a cartoon drawing of the of of, Kong, of the, uh, the the U.S. Capitol, and then it has Nancy Pelosi and Orrin Hatch and uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer being chased out of the Capitol by a huge angry mob as dollar bills fly out of their pockets and, and, and all that. And then down at the bottom it says a citizen's guide to why we need term limits and how to get them. Right. So I, it, 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 I really liked that as well. Uh, I had uh, uh, I had other people design that one for me because uh, as history bore out, my ideas were not that great on a book cover. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, in rereading your book in preparation for talking to you, um, the first edition, I was re-impressed uh, with your handling of the arguments for and against uh, term limits, and also its straightforward, nonpartisan manner. Um, but my favorite part is the stories you tell about specific congressmen who, caught with their hands in the cookie jar, none, nonetheless get reelected over and over again. And let me just throw out an example, um, because there are many. Uh, Jesse Jackson, Jr., First came to Congress in 1995. He won a special election because uh, uh, Mel Reynolds uh, was convicted on 12 counts of sexual assault, obstruction of justice, solicitation of child pornography, etc. And after 15, after 17 years in office, uh, things started going sour for Jesse Jackson. Um, and that year, uh, he sort of disappeared. He, he stopped showing up for work, and apparently about a month later, he, he was found um, at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, going uh, undergoing extensive inpatient evaluation for depression and other issues, and it turns out that he unfortunately was treated for bipolar disorder. Um, and then a few weeks before the election, uh, it also came out that the FBI was being was investigating him for financial improprieties, and he later pled guilty to charges of fraud, conspiracy, <clears throat> making false statements, and then the election was held. And he won. <laughs> yep. And he won. <laughs> and he didn't just win. Line. He won overwhelmingly. Yes, um, even that, with all that yeah. baggage. And and of course, the reason, the primary reason, is that the he didn't have serious. He had challengers. He didn't have serious challengers. The power of incumbency is so great that the incumbent won, and any serious challengers had been scared off already. The election was held, and this guy won overwhelmingly. Yeah. What's yeah, wrong with absolutely. this picture? The power of incumbency is so huge. Uh, an example that you can use is it's a 100-yard dash, and everybody starts at the same time, and they finish at the same place. When you say, okay, everybody who has a ground game already set up, take go 10 yards forward. Everyone who has lobbyists already set up to fund what they need, take 10, go 10 yards forward. Everyone who already has a big war chest built up, Go ten yards forward. Everybody who has uh, who has name recognition, go go ten yards forward. And as they just keep going ten yards forward and ten yards forward, eventually the incumbent gets down to about the ninety yard mark, and the challenger still has to start out at the at the very start. So if all I have to do is run ten yards to win a race, I can be the Olympic champion, and I'm sixty years old. 
and have bad knees. So that's kind of the way that it is with a, with the incumbents is they have so much of an advantage. You just can't, you, you just, you, you can't beat them. Now, now and again, you will have someone, uh, the, the, uh, woman in, in New York who took out mm-hmm. the high ranking congressman in the, uh, in the primary. That happens from time to time, but very rarely, very rarely does that happen. It's just just often enough that they can go, well, see, see, that right. that disproves what you're saying, but it doesn't account for the over over 95% retention ratio or, or rating that, the, that we have there in Congress when they have a, an approval rating of about 15%. That that just doesn't match up. It just, right, and naturally because it, because it is an unusual event when an incumbent gets beaten – it's news. By definition, it's news. Absolutely. And so naturally, these cases dominate every election cycle, when in fact, they actually are a very small part of every election cycle. Absolutely. I think that uh, uh, Nicholas uh, Tombalides, mm-hmm. I, I love reading some of the things that he writes, because <laughs> he writes things, and, he, and when, he, when he says something, he says it very succinctly. And, and very powerfully. And one of the things that he wrote was, if lobbyists and bureaucrats got more power from term limits, we would already have term limits. Huh, that is the truth. And he right. said, in all his time, and, and you're the you're the president of the U.S. term limits. Have you ever had a a lobbyist come in and say, Philip, how can I help you get term limits? Because we Never. need more power. Never. 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 All their money and do you comes think on that, the other side. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the lobbyists sit back and they say, well, we don't want term limits because we would get too much power out of that. <laughs> and we think that that's a bad thing to have the lobbyists. So so when people say things like that that are just so patently absurd, it's easy to to refute what they're saying because just common sense. You just one plus one equals two in that case. There's there's really no no room for debate because the lobbyists don't want term limits. And if they don't want term limits, then I do. Where can people obtain this book today? Today, it's only available as an e-book from Amazon, The Term Limit Revolution. But uh, we will have it out from Amazon and from uh, Barnes & Noble. Probably in two months, it'll be out uh, available as an e-book or as a physical copy. We would also love to have people go to our Facebook page, like our Facebook page. Is that the Term Limit Revolution? The Term Limit Revolution, yes, the Term Limit, term limit Revolution on Facebook. Very good. Thank you very much, Scott. It was great having you. Well, thank you. you so much. I sure appreciate your call. Hi, this is Austin Seckel with U.S. Term Limits. I wanted to speak with you briefly today about how every conversation you have is meaningful. At USTL, we have a pledge program, and we give candidates the opportunity to stand with the people and show their support for term limits. And the pledges either support the establishment of term limits or support the defense of them and keeping them in place in government. And the Florida State Legislature... Uh, House term limits, the voters of Florida overwhelmingly passed them in the early 90s by 77% of the vote um, for two four-year terms in the House and two four-year terms in the Senate. And 
uh, a candidate who's running for state house by the name of Larry Metz had reached out to me. He had received our pledge in the mail, and he wanted to speak about, you know, why it was so important to keep the term limits in place, and we want to keep them small. We want to keep um, politicians accountable and not um, trying to fill their own pockets with taxpayer money, and. Uh, you know, Larry. You know, we had a respectful, civil conversation, and he hung up. You know, I hung up. There was no uh, final decision made at the end of the call. And a couple of days later, I received an email, and it was a signed pledge from Larry stating that he was 100% on board after thinking it over. It, it goes to show that you know any opportunity can be a catalyst for change. Larry ended up championing the issue of term limits. He. Um, introduced a bill in the Florida State Legislature, it was the first of its kind, that proposed an Article 5 convention specifically for the establishment of term limits on Congress. And it passed uh, both chambers and passed the Florida Legislature, and it was the first of its kind. Now two more states this past session have signed or passed uh, similar legislation in Missouri and, and Alabama. And um, it, it's spreading, and hopefully this next session we're going to see even more and push this to the, the tipping point and finally term limit Congress once and for all. So take every conversation you have into consideration. It could be very important, and be prepared for that conversation and, and, and know your, your facts and the issue that you're trying to represent well. We had over 40 candidates sign this this cycle our our pledge for defending term limits in the florida legislature thanks for your time and i'll speak with you soon so what about brett kavanaugh um he, he is replacing the swing vote and as you mentioned earlier he in a way is the new swing vote do we know anything about his position on this are we do you think he's positively or negatively disposed towards the term limits position? You know, I don't know his judicial track record that well. And if you've been watching these hearings the last couple of days, you've seen that um, <laughs> he, like most other nominees, tends to keep everything very close to the vest. So you don't know what mm -hmm. he's thinking and he's not willing to uh, be very opinionated. But mm -hmm. based on what we're hearing is his philosophy of, you know, constitutionalism and originalism, one has to think that he could be persuaded by that Tenth Amendment argument um, that Which is? if a power – if something is not uh, delegated to the federal government by the Constitution uh, nor prohibited by it to the states, then it would be the state's power. And term limits could potentially fall into that category, whereas you know, the Constitution does not um, – you know, give co Congress or the federal government the exclusive authority to set a term limit, but it also doesn't mm -hmm. say states can't do it, which would mean that states do have that power under the 10th Amendment. And I think based on what I've heard about Kavanaugh, he could be re very receptive to that argument. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I know in the 300 written opinions that he's participated in, um, we can't really glean anything particularly about the term limits, but you're right, indirectly, there's, there's that to, to hang our hat on. Uh, it reminds me of the other new member of the uh, Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who has added uh, another appointee from uh, President Trump, uh, who actually does have a history on this issue, not in court, but on paper. 
uh, Neil Gorsuch authored a uh, uh, an article in the Cato Journal back in 1992 about the constitutionality of federal of congressional term limits. And uh, in that paper, he laid out very clearly why he thought that uh, term limits are constitutional. And it's pretty clear from reading that paper to me that he would have been on the in the minority. Uh, of course, he would have swung it if he was the swing vote um, back in 1995 with U.S. term limits versus Thornton. And one thing I'd throw out about re reading this paper today is that his understanding of the issue, not just the constitutionality, but the issue itself of term limits was very good. I mean, he gave a couple of examples of the benefits of term limits that could have been could have been uh, published by U.S. term limits itself. Listen to this. Uh, he said term limits would level the playing field in an election process that otherwise provides incumbents with practically insurmountable advantages, ensure that elected representatives truly represent and are representative of the community that elected them, prevent corruption in office, and broaden opportunities for participation in public service. Dynamite. Amazing. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think the uh, the one downside, I guess, uh, if there is one of, of Gorsuch, is that he replaced someone who had already voted with us. So he doesn't right. actually tilt the balance of the court all that much. Um, but just the, fact, just the fact that he's such an articulate spokesman and understands the issue so well, um, that mm -hmm. has to you know, have some practical value in whether the Supreme Court decides to take this up. Well, that's it for the fifth episode of No Uncertain Terms. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. If so, please subscribe. You can go to the podcast app on your iPhone or to iTunes directly or to Stitcher if you have an Android phone. Here, please subscribe and while you're there, leave a review. In doing so, you're committing to being a highly educated term limits activist. And with enough of people like you, we cannot lose.